Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording after the Pats fell to the Bills 27-21 in Buffalo today. Ordinarily, we'd talk with three-time Super Bowl champ James White after the game, but good thing for James, he had an opportunity to call the Raiders-Colts game, so he was there calling that game, so I hope he had a good time there. Sure, he did a great job. We'll catch up with James after the Pats-Jets next week. So before we even get into this game, it's kind of crazy to me that the Patriots, they pull off this big upset over Denver last week. And essentially, Russell Wilson, he's probably going to get benched at some point anyway, but Russell Wilson gets benched. It's this big storyline in Denver. And then the Patriots are playing this Bills game. And you're thinking, oh, this is going to be the Patriots we've seen most of the season after the way that the game started with all the turnovers. And I'll get into that. But all of a sudden, you look up and it's like you got one TV on, or I should say I have one TV. I have one TV on the Patriots game. And then the other TV I have on Red Zone so I could sort of follow everything else that's going on. And you look up and it's like, hold on, Arizona is going to beat Philadelphia? How is this possible? And you know how it's possible? Matty P, baby. Matt Patricia has taken over as the play caller defensively for the Eagles. So Matt Patricia, is he doing a job for Bill? Is he a spy for Bill Belichick right now? Because we know he still has loyalty to Bill. Obviously, I'm sure he's not happy with the Kraft family right now, the way that he was treated and basically blamed for everything that happened last year. And look, he deserves a lot of blame for what happened from an offensive perspective, but he should have never been in that spot. We don't have to get into that whole storyline, but we're looking for help elsewhere and Matt Patricia may have done it. So all the venom, all the anger that you had towards Matt Patricia last year, he may actually help the Patriots out as it comes to their draft stock. Because as we're recording right now, And this is flipping back and forth like crazy with the Patriots and the Commanders because with Arizona's win, they actually moved to fourth. The Patriots at the moment, like I said, now this can switch by the time you're hearing this, this could switch because Washington and the Patriots are going back and forth like crazy. But as of right now, the Patriots have the number two pick in the draft. Now, last week it felt like the Patriots were locked into number four, or at least they weren't going to get number two because of the win over the Denver Broncos. This is what I'm going to say. I don't want to get too excited about this, okay, for a couple of reasons here. The first one is because for weeks, you know me on the pod, I have convinced myself or I had convinced myself that the Patriots are getting Drake May. So I was excited. I really want Drake May. That's why I want the Patriots starting quarterback to be next season. And I don't want to be in that world again where I'm believing it's going to happen because for about two to three weeks, I in more than that, actually, I legitimately believed it was going to happen. 
And then after the Denver game, as I mentioned on the pod, I was crushed. So I don't want to be living in that neighborhood where I'm expecting to get Drake May. And then all of a sudden, the Patriots don't get Drake May. Like, that is not a place I want to live right now. And the other reason that I don't want to believe it or that I'm not going to go all in and say, hey, yes, the Patriots are back at number two. They're going to get Drake May is they play the Jets to end the season. The Jets looked absolutely horrible against Cleveland. You could say, yeah, Cleveland's a really good team and all that. Yeah, I get all that. I understand all that. But let me ask you this. Let's just say the hypothetical is, and I want to get into Bill's future. I know we keep talking about Bill's future, but don't you think Bill Belichick's going to have his team ready to play in the final game of the season? They easily could have beat the Bills in this game today if it wasn't for dumb turnovers. And I know you could say that about a lot of games, but this Patriots team is playing well right now. Like, I know the mistakes on offense, but the defense is playing well. Like, this is the best they've played all season long, these past couple of games. Like, they are playing hard. They are playing for each other. They are playing for the coaching staff. They are playing solid football. The Jets are not playing solid football right now. Belichick owns the Jets. Belichick hates the Jets. If it is, hypothetically, Bill's last game as the Patriots head coach, you think he's losing to the Jets? No, they're not losing to the Jets next week. And look, I may look like an idiot, and if I do, I will be happy. I'll be the first person to say that was a dumb take by me. I can't believe I had that take, and I'm so happy that the Patriots actually have the number two pick, and they're going to get Drake May because they lost to the Jets. I just don't believe it. I think the Patriots next week will beat the Jets. The way they're playing right now, and the way the Jets are playing right now, and right now the Patriots have the better quarterback. Zappi's like, I, I know, I'll get into the picks and all that, but Zappi's the better quarterback right now, okay? So I just, I don't want to get into that headspace that I was in for so long and then be so mad on Christmas Eve night into Christmas morning. I don't want to live in that space right now, okay? So until the Patriots officially have the number two pick in the draft, I'm not getting excited for it because I honestly, at this point, and you may disagree, I don't believe it's going to happen. Okay, so let's get to some other stuff from this in terms of just the game today. So one of the things that I'm now watching down the stretch of the season is Bailey Zappi. And one of the reasons for that is I believe there's a good chance that Bailey Zappi could be the starting quarterback, or I should say, I believe there's a good chance that Bailey Zappi will be the starting quarterback for the Patriots in 2024. I talked about it the other day with Doug Kide. So I wanted to see how does Bailey Zappi play down the stretch of the season? Like at the beginning of the season, we're trying to find out, hey, is Mac the guy? We found out very quickly Mac isn't the guy. And most of us believed even prior to the season that Mac wasn't the guy. But hey, can Zappi at least, we know that Zappi is going to be in some sense, a bridge quarterback to the next great Patriots quarterback, right? I'm not crazy. Nobody believes Zappi is going to be the quarterback for the next 10 to 15 years. But hey, can he be a competent quarterback for two to three years? We've seen this with various organizations across the NFL where they have sort of a stopgap type guy. Can Bailey Zappi be that? Be that? I think that is one of the interesting things that you can take away from down the stretch of the season. And if you look at the final line, you say, hey, it's really not pretty. 16 of 26, 209, three interceptions, a passer rating south of 50. By the way, Bailey Zappi had three interceptions in the first half, and he had a higher passer rating than Josh Allen in the first half. That's almost impossible. A quarterback has three picks, and he has a higher passer rating than the quarterback on the other side. But anyway, so you look at that line, and you say it's not pretty. And look, you go early on in this game, the Patriots, they have that 7 nothing lead after the Rager kickoff return, right? And the defense then forces a three and out. Okay, so you're thinking, the Patriots may pull off an upset in Buffalo today. They may be cooking with gasoline here, right? Zappi's first pass is deflected up in the air. And then by Douglas, Rasul Douglas, who we'll get to again later on in the game. And then Ed Oliver has that interception. That was a bad decision by Bailey Zappi. He was late. Like, you could tell what he originally wanted to do is get the ball out to Farrell Brown, who was kind of in the flat. Farrell Brown isn't turned around. So Zappi then tries to throw the ball into Gasicki, but the problem was he was too late. So because he was too late, the defender can get there and Rasul Douglas hits it up in the air. Bad decision by Bailey Zappi. Nobody could argue to the contrary. Then it's seven to three later on in that first quarter. Zappi's looking for Parker on a slant. Douglas knows the slant is coming. Like the Patriots, they don't have a really big playbook right now, especially considering all the injuries they're dealing with. And everybody knows that Parker, he does love to run slants. So it was a good call by Douglas. He jumped the road route interception. Nice play by Douglas there. So another mistake by Zappi. Then the Bills score, they make it 10 to 7, and you have that Farrell Brown fumble, right, where another mistake by the Patriots offense. That's not on Zappi. Obviously, that's on Farrell Brown, but then the Bills have to settle for a field goal. They make it 13 to 7. That's part of what was impressive about the defense. We'll get to that later, but 
Then the Pats and Bills exchange punts. And then Zappi throws another pick. This time, it's a pick six where he's looking for Rager. That was on Rager, okay? And James White actually tweeted about this, that that's on Rager. Like, when the blitz is coming, that's when Rager has to adjust his route. He didn't adjust his route. And you could tell that Zappi was aggravated by that. That's not on Zappi. That's on the receiver. So, okay, that one's on the receiver. The second one's a really nice play. The first one is just a boneheaded decision all around by Bailey Zappi. But here's the thing. It's like, all right, he's already thrown three interceptions. It's the first quarter. There's still a lot of game left. How is he going to respond? This is what I wanted to find out, right? Because the other quarterback to play for the Patriots this year, Mac Jones, any tiny little bit of adversity, the afternoon was over. The game was over. Forget about it. Like, remember the Dallas game? Remember the New Orleans game? Mac makes a mistake early, forget about it. He doesn't respond well to adversity. Okay, well, what's going to happen with Bailey Zappi? Because he was horrible. Like, the team was horrible in terms of the offense. The defense was good in the first quarter. How does he respond? Okay, well, next drive, he gets the ball back. Zeke, a six-yard run. Zeke then loses two yards. Zappi finds Harris for a first down. Then Douglas drops the ball. A nice ball by Zappi. Would have been a huge pickup. Next play, little dump off to Harris. A screen, 48 yards. And then he scrambles for a touchdown. He makes it 20 to 14 right then and there. I'm like, Zappy, I love it, man. Like, he's more mobile than you think. I mean, that's why Jamie's always betting on Fandle for the uh, Zappy over rushing yards. But right then and there, you're looking at it, you're like, okay, I like how this guy fight, fights back. Like, this game easily could have gotten out of hand. If Mac Jones was the quarterback today, game's over. It's over in the first quarter. Zappy fights back, nice drive down the field, and a really nice play to run the ball into the end zone. And... How many times did we see this year, Mac, the body language after a receiver had a drop or something along those lines, or he didn't like the play, like the, just the body language the past years has been bad for Mac. You have a drop by Douglas, Zappy doesn't give a shit, next play, let's go. Okay, then the next series, right before halftime, Zeke runs for two yards, and then Zappy starts to cook. He finds Thornton for 14 yards, he scrambles for 18 yards, he finds Gasicki for 18 yards, he finds Douglas for 15 yards. And then, I don't know, at the time when Bill O'Brien made this play call, Zeke had seven carries for 11 yards. He runs the ball there. Like, I, I don't understand it. Like, the Patriots are playing fast. They're playing with tempo. And all of a sudden, he wants to run the football with Zeke. When the pass game is working, the Bills are clearly tired. Their secondary is tired. And you decide to run, you run for zero yards, okay? So that kind of ruins the drive. He then is incomplete looking for Douglas. He then has the check down to Gusecki to try to set up the field goal for 47 yards. What do you know? Chad Ryland misses again. I mean, this guy absolutely stinks. They used what? Fourth round draft pick on him. So, but that should have been more points for Zappy on that drive. Like they should have went into halftime 20 to 17 because that should have been a field goal. Most NFL kickers hit that. In fact, right now by the numbers, you have the worst NFL kicker right now. So that's part of the problem as well. All right. So then in the fourth quarter, the Patriots are down 27 to 14. And I want to see again, hey, is Zappy going to fight back like are we going to see the Patriots try to make a run at this thing and what does he do he finds Rager a beautiful ball for 39 yards just an unbelievable throw and then you have a reverse to Douglas for he picks up 17 yards that moves it to the seven and then Zeke has a rushing TD you make it 27 to 20 so when it seemed like the game was over 27 to 14 you still had another chance and then of course the Patriots couldn't move the ball when they were backed up deep in their own territory but I thought it was awfully impressive. And I know you can say, Brian, you sound like an idiot right now. The guy threw three interceptions at the game. But I think if you just watch the entire game today, you come across at least impressed with Zappi, where it's like, OK, like going back to circling back to what I was saying off the top, I don't believe the Patriots are getting the number two pick, even if they're currently in the number two pick territory right now, because I think they're going to beat the Jets. Like, are you going to be OK? I think this is an important question because we talked about, hey, bring in a veteran and have Zappi. How do you feel about entering 2024 with Bailey Zappi as your quarterback? Yeah, you certainly don't feel like you have the next Tom Brady. I mean, that's a bad example, but your next franchise quarterback, you don't feel like you have Joe Burrow, right? You certainly don't feel like you have Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or Josh Allen or even Justin Herbert. You don't feel like you have that guy, but is he passable? Can he be passable? And I think what he does is... He's won over the locker room. He's won over his teammates by the way that he continues to respond. Like, how much of this season to you, watching Mac Jones play, was aggravating, was annoying? It's like you didn't want to cheer for the guy, right? Because the attitude's been terrible for two years. Any 
difficult situation in the game. He gives up. It feels like he just throws in the towel. He makes mistake after mistake. Yeah, Bailey Zappi's not perfect. He's not super talented, but he fights back. And I think his teammates appreciate that. And quite frankly, as somebody that just wants to watch an entertaining football team, I appreciate the way that Bailey Zappi plays. The guy fights like, and I feel like he's got one more game to sort of see what he can do down the stretch of the season. If you're asking me right now, who is the most likely starter for the Patriots week one, 2024, I would love to say Drake May, but you know how I feel about that? I don't think it's happening. I would say it's Bailey Zappi. I think that's the most likely scenario. Okay, the other thing I would mention is the defense, and we kind of alluded to it, but you look at the numbers in this game. The Bills on the season are fifth in yards per play at 5.8. They were at 4.3 today, or 4.1 rather, and the Panthers are last in the NFL at 4.3. So you made them worse than the Bryce Young Panthers today. That's how good this defense was in this game. Now, they couldn't get off the field late, which obviously that was an issue, but Overall, it's tough to really blame the defense in this game. You look at it too, total yards, the Bills average 374.1 per game. They are fourth in the NFL. If you look at their final numbers in this game today in terms of the total yardage, one of the more pedestrian games that the Bills have played, quite frankly, all season long, and they finished this game with, what, 281 total yards. And if you look at it on the season, the only team south of that would be Las Vegas, Carolina, the Jets, and the Giants. So you essentially made the Bills into one of the worst offenses in the NFL. And this is a team that's been playing really, really good football lately, right? And then Josh Allen was bad. He was 15 of 30. He had the nice pick by Austin where he kind of fooled Josh Allen. Great interception. He finished with a 53.1 passer rating. Daniel Jones is the worst qualifier at 70.5. And then you look at the yards per attempt, 5.6. The only qualified quarterback at 5.6 is Bryce Young. So you made Josh Allen and look, he did some stuff with his legs. He had the two rushing touchdowns and all that. But as a passer, you made Josh Allen really pedestrian today and not a lot of teams in the NFL can do that right now. And you think about too, like the impressive thing about this defense is how they bailed out the offense early on in this game. Like this easily could have been 48 to 14, like or 48 to 10, where the Patriots just got run, run off the football field. But the fact that this defense continued to respond, I was impressed. And I know we're talking about a team right now that technically has the number two pick, but I don't know how you're not impressed with the defense right now. I mean, second drive after the the turnover by Zappi, of course, right? The interception. Cook runs for four yards. Allen incomplete to Diggs, incomplete to Cook. They have to kick a field goal. Third drive after another turnover for the Patriots, right? Cook runs for six yards. He runs for five yards. Allen then is incomplete pressure by White. And then he's incomplete again, White and Bentley with pressure. And then he's incomplete to Sherfield. They have to set up for a field goal. So that was twice in a row. Now, eventually, they did give up a touchdown on one of those turnovers. But you're talking about short fields. We're talking about the 30, the 21, and what, like the 19, or 14, rather. The 30, the 21, and the 14 they're starting their drives at. And you only gave up a touchdown on one of those. I mean, that's awfully impressive from this team. So I believe there are two big takeaways from this game and really over the past few weeks. The first one, we sort of got into it. I like the way that Zappy competes and if the Patriots like knock on wood and maybe I'm just like psychologically trying to convince myself like don't believe they're going to get Drake Bay don't believe they're going to get Drake Bay because then if they actually do you can be super excited about it right but I'd be okay going into the season with Bailey Zappi at a better and I think that even though he played poorly at the beginning of this game I think he shows a lot of guts I do and this team is going to be a lot better next year than it is right now and can certainly upgrade with weapons we got into that earlier in the week the other thing I would say is this the whole idea of Bill's future. I've been saying all along that it felt like time and it, feel, that it feels like it's time for them to move on from Bill. And it feels like the momentum is growing that way. But ever since this team made the switch to Zappi, it feels like Bill has control of the team again and that the team is all pulling the rope in the same direction. Like, think about this Trent Brown situation today where he has contract issues because he didn't reach incentives. So... He's been upset, so he's a healthy scratch. That could have been a distraction. That was not a distraction for this team at all, right? And so you think about it, too. The defense is really well coached. I don't know. Like, Austin's coming out of nowhere having picks on Josh Allen. The defense is really well coached. Miles Bryant was excellent in that game against Denver, right? And here's my thing. If the plan is, like we've talked about, and it stays this way, if the plan is to eventually give the job to Gerard Mayo, which, by the way, I don't agree with. I've, I've said that on multiple occasions. Not that I don't think that Gerard Mayo could be the next great head coach of the Patriots. I just don't think that you should give the guy the job. 
because you convinced him not to go for interviews. Heck, what if you did that with Josh McDaniels? How would you feel about that, right? Because that was the idea, right? Oh, they're bringing Josh back. And maybe that meant that Josh could eventually take over. How would you feel about that, right? And not to compare the two guys because they're different personalities and Mayo doesn't have a head coaching resume already like Josh McDaniels had a bad head coaching resume when he was with the Denver Broncos. But my point with that is I would just like to have a search. I, I don't want to just give Gerard Mayo the job. That that to me just doesn't really make any sense. I think that's bad practice if you actually do it that way. But anyway, if you look at it right now, you look at this team, you win. If you think about like if the coach has lost the team, right? Do you win on a short week in Pittsburgh? And look, this screwed, This is like screwed up your draft pick at times during the year we've talked about, right? Like these wins, right? Like we were upset about some of these wins. But a team that doesn't believe in its coach and a team that's not well coached doesn't go to Pittsburgh on a short week and win. If a team doesn't believe in its coach and it's not well coached, it doesn't go into Denver on Christmas Eve night in altitude where Tom Brady struggled to win. And I get it. It's a different Denver team. But a team that is at that point still fighting for a playoff berth and win there. You don't win there if the team doesn't believe in the coach and the coach is not coaching the team well. And look, we can nitpick through any of this stuff. I totally understand all that. I'm just pointing it out. So it feels like right now, it felt like, I should say, that it was inevitable the Patriots are going to move on from Bill Belichick. And if the answer to the question I posed earlier where... Is Gerard Mayo just going to be the next head coach? If that is the answer, right? And like I said, I disagree with the logic of that's how they want to do it. But anyway, let's just go with that hypothetical because that feels like it's the most likely scenario right now in Patriot land that eventually Gerard Mayo will be the head coach of the Patriots. If that's the case, why do we have to give it to him after this season? You tell me because I think you only, I think that's only a negative thing. Like, It'd be one thing, it, we mentioned, I just went through it. Like if Bill had lost the locker room and there were issues and all that, yes, okay, then you move on from him. But I just don't feel that way right now. I feel like these guys go up to the podium every week and they defend Bill. And you know me, I've been very critical of Bill this season. And I disagree with a lot of decisions they've made, especially as it comes to the draft, which I'll get to that in a second here. But my overwhelming point about this is just, I don't feel strongly that it's time to move off Belichick. If the answer is, like, if you think there's a great coach out there, right? If you think, like, I, I'm just throwing it out there for the hell of it. But say you think you can get Harbaugh and you think Harbaugh is going to be a great coach. Fine, I get all that. But if the answer is just Gerard Mayo and then he can just take over in 2024, 2025 rather anyway, why wouldn't you just bring Bill back, right? Because I feel like, and Doug Kite alluded to this the other day, maybe the defense takes a step back if, say, does Steve want to coach for Gerard Mayo? So you do lose Bill Belichick and Steve Belichick and people can make fun of Steve and all this, but he's a good football mind, right? So I just feel like it's not, I'm not in a rush to give the job to Gerard Mayo. I'm not. I would just let Bill coach the team next season because does anybody look at the way they're playing down the stretch? Look, the, the beginning of the season was terrible, but ever since they switched the quarterback, something has changed. And clearly it isn't the coach right now that's the problem to me. Now, what is the problem? And what is going to continue to be the problem, if they don't change anything, is the front office decisions. So this is all contingent on Bill taking a back seat. So that's the hypothetical. If Bill is willing to take a back seat when it comes to the personnel stuff, because if he still wants to coach and he still wants to coach here, maybe he would be willing to do that. So to me, at this point, the things that I've learned down the stretch of the season here, I would keep Bill for next year. And I know that may sound crazy based on some of what we thought earlier this year, but what we know about Gerard Mayo, his future with the organization, them wanting to sort of hand the keys over to Gerard Mayo, what's the harm in waiting till 2025? He could be, if you think about it from Mayo's perspective, he could even be set up better going into the following season, right? Where it's like, oh, this thing seems to be back on track a little bit. So I wouldn't rush it. I would just stick with Bill. Now, circling back to where we started this whole thing. I am going to be so nervous watching the Jets game next week because I hate the Jets so much, but I know, and I know Belichick hates the Jets so much, and I know that Robert Kraft hates the Jets so much, but it's, that's going to be the most difficult one where you know that the best thing for the organization next week is to lose to the Jets, but you hate the Jets and it's going to hurt, but then you could get Drake May, but it's going to be difficult to watch yourself lose to that team, right? And I just don't think they can. I, I Look, they can, can's the wrong word. Like, obviously, it's possible. 
But I just don't see it. I really don't see the Patriots losing to the Jets next week. All right, a lot more to get into. I do want to get into the big news with the Red Sox over the weekend because we went from crickets with this organization to a lot of news, and not all of it is good. We'll get to it next. The NFL regular season is wrapping up, but there's still time to get in on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your $5 bet. That's $150 in bonus bets, win or lose. And I'm looking at the final game of the season for the Pats coming up against the Jets, of course, next weekend. I like the Pats on the money line to win that game. And I know it's not the best thing for their draft stock, but the Jets stink and the Patriots always beat the Jets, so I'm going with the Pats in that one. The app is so easy to use and there's so many different ways you can bet, like live game, same game parlays. You can find bets in the new Explore tab, make a parlay in the Parlay Hub, the best way to find popular parlays, and more. So visit FanDuel.com Pike and make your first bet a layup. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus in President Select States. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I did want to get to some Red Sox here because things got awfully loud on Saturday in Red Sox land. So they traded Chris Sale and $17 million to the Braves for second baseman Vaughn Grissom. More on him in a little bit. But before that, I want to pause for Sale for a second here because... This is a guy that, of course, came to Boston in 2017. He played for John Farrell. Like, he's been here forever, man. He had the magical 300 strikeout season when he first got here. And you could argue that the 300 strikeouts wore him down because he was terrible in that series against the Astros. And he had a chance to help you win that series. He couldn't do it. He came in a relief. One of those game, gave, uh, games rather gave up another home run. But when they made that trade yesterday, sending him to Atlanta for Vaughn Grissom, it's not a surprise because obviously they're taking on money too, but it's just kind of sad that this is how it sort of ends for Chris Sale. Think about when the Red Sox traded for Sale. I was so excited and what a trade by Dave Dombrowski too, like the initial trade, not the extension, where he said, I'm not putting in Rafael Devers, I'm not putting in Andrew Benintendi. You can have Kopik, you can have Moncada, but you're not getting Rafael or Benintendi. And he looked the White Sox in the eyes and... They ended up taking the trade that he wanted. He was not going to put Raphael Devers in that deal, right? So it was a great trade. And then the sale day thing became real. It was the first time we had appointment viewing for a pitcher since Pedro. And I'll never compare anybody to Pedro, but like you wanted to be, in, especially in 2017 when he first came here, you wanted to be in front of your TV because of his greatness. But he was also like a showman. Not that he did this in an intentional sense, but he had... The limbs are flying everywhere, right? Like super skiddy, the primal screams, all the strikeouts. Like he got so many stupid swings. Like he legitimately had a back foot slider. Like against righties, he had a slider where we've seen multiple times guys have swung at a pitch that, that would then eventually hit them, right? That's how good his slider was at times. And then in 18, he was actually better than he was in 17. He would have won the Cy Young if he didn't get shut down. Remember that year, 211 ERA, second in the AL, 38.4% strikeout rate. Verlander was second in baseball that year at 34.8%. So he was 3.6 percentage points better than Verlander, who was second in that category. That's how dominant Chris Sale was that particular season. And then, of course, as we mentioned, he gets shut down in August for a while, and he comes back for the playoffs, and he really can't even contribute that much. I know that he struck out Manny Machado, but that was he was supposed to start that game. And David Price pitched on short rest in Houston because Chris Sale was supposed to start. And of course, he was unable to go in that particular game. But the summer, or I should say the start of 17 into the summer of 18, that was a show with Chris Sale. It was must-see TV. And as we mentioned, the playoffs is obviously that was an issue. But after, I would say really in 18, after he had that original injury, that's when he started to become really undependable, right? You could not depend on him at all. But circling back to where I started, it's just sad because that run was so fun. And it just feels like because of all the injuries and the stop and start nature of his seasons, that's how he's going to be remembered, right? Like we're not going to remember Chris Sale for the World Series. At least most of us aren't. I wish we could, but Chris Sale's story in Boston is more about injuries and a bad contract than it is his World Series run, right? The first thing we'll think of is the bad contract and the injuries. That's just the reality of his tenure here. Nobody dislikes the guy. Like, he's a good guy. It's just that's how we'll think of Chris Sale. Now, 
And it's not like he was a dog, like, oh, he came in out of shape. That's why he's getting all those injuries or like like a Zion Williamson situation, right? Where the guy has issues with his motor and all. This is never the issue with sales, just he couldn't stay healthy. So here's the issue. The extension was just an utter disaster. So if you go from when the extension actually kicked in, because he signed it prior to the 19 season, but the extension starts in 2020, the COVID year, and it ends in 2023. And of course, he missed all of 2020 with the TJ. So if you look at the extension, 31 starts during it, that's tied for 183rd in baseball, 151 innings, 183rd among starters. And if you look like the numbers are fine, 393 ERA, 372 FIP, it's not prime sale before the injuries, but he was fine when he actually pitched for the most. I know, look, he had some bad outings and the Tampa Bay one in the playoffs comes to mind. He was good in that Astros game besides pitching the ball to Alvarez, right? Like other than that, I don't think he should have pitched him a third time. That's a different conversation for a different day. I don't want to go through that whole series again, but the whole point is just the fact that he was unreliable throughout that contract. And the big issue here is they didn't have to give Sale a contract extension, right? Because if you look at it, 18, as we mentioned, that's when he started to deal with the injuries and he was shaky in the playoffs. So in 19, he still had a year left on his deal. So why did the Red Sox at that point before 19 give him a contract extension? Because remember in 19, he finished the season on the 60-day DL right after you gave him that extension. He was not good that season, a 440 ERA. And as we mentioned earlier, the next year is Tommy John. But the Red Sox, the reason they gave him that extension is they were petrified of the John Lester situation. Heck, they admitted it. John Henry said, quote, I think we blew the John Lester. We blew the signing in spring training. And for some reason that are apparent now, which I won't go into, but they're apparent. Now, John Henry was also asked about signing pitchers into their 30s, because remember, before Chris Sale and David Price, that was a no-no for the Red Sox. Well, John Henry said, I think Chris falls out of the norm because he's such a great, not just a great pitcher, but a great part of the team, as we saw in the World Series. He had quite an impact just being on the bench during the World Series. And remember, what he's referring to is that like fight, or not the fight, the speech that he gave. Remember, he was like all fired up. He wasn't even like pitching and he was all fired up, gave that speech. That's what he's referring to. But anyway... So that just tells you they didn't, ownership didn't want to lose the personality. Everybody loves Sale. They all of a sudden changed their thinking on 30-year-old pitchers because they loved Chris Sale. It wasn't because all of a sudden they're like, actually, it makes sense to pay guys in their 30s. No, they did it because they didn't want another John Lester situation. They didn't want the fan base to be upset not having Chris Sale. And two totally different situations. Like, Lester was just coming off a great 2013 postseason where he was their ace in that postseason run and he was durable and he's 250 pounds. Sale is 6'6", 180. Like if you're going to pick one of these guys, and obviously Sale's peak, Sale's a way better pitcher than John Lester at his peak. But if you were betting on, a, on one of these guys based on the body type to age gracefully, you would have bet on John Lester, right? Because Chris Sale, I mean, he's his legs are like number two pencils with no lead. I mean, he has no lower half whatsoever. Like, and just look at how he throws, right? It's violent. It's that crossfire. John Lester had a much more natural delivery. So you could see that Chris Sale was not going to age like John Lester. But the point being is the reason they changed sort of their ethos in terms of starting pitchers in their 30s was because of the Lester botch situation. And that's why Chris Sale got that extension. Chris Sale has even said himself, that he should thank John Lester. Like, that's a direct quote from Chris Sale. He said he should thank John Lester. But anyway, so then what happens is ownership blames Dave Nabrowski for the contract extension. And look, I'm not defending Dave here. Like, Dave made the trade, and he wanted him signed too. Like, it's not like Dave Nabrowski didn't want to give him that extension, but ownership also wanted that extension. But instead, it was just Dave's fault for giving out these contract extensions, not ownership, when obviously ownership had a big role in this particular situation as well. So anyway, I, I just, I don't hold anything against sale, but I just wanted to point that out is like the contract extension. It wasn't just a Dave Dombrowski thing. It's not just a Chris Sale problem. It was an ownership problem, right? But anyway, and if you're Chris Sale, like you take the money. It wasn't like he was lazy, right? Like I was saying earlier, like you feel good for the guy. I just, I said it the day that they signed him, I was at my old employer, WEI, and I said that there's no way that this is going to be a good contract. Just make him play it out. And they decided not to do that. But and look, maybe that deal hurt you. And I don't know exactly what guy you didn't sign or what guy you would have signed, but maybe it stopped you from getting other guys. But anyway, 
the big problem that they had, and this is where I think Craig Breslow is making the right decision, is the Red Sox went into last season. Remember, Corey Kluber was their opening day starter, by the way. But they went into last season. They were banking on Paxton coming back, right? And Paxton was coming back from an injury. He came back. He actually pitched well for a while, as we all know. Then he got hurt again. But the issue was they were planning on sale. Like they were banking on, hey, we're getting 140, 150 innings out of sale. And what happens? He makes just 20 starts, 102 and two-thirds innings. And he had his moments where he looked great. I was at the start that he made his way back from, remember, he's out forever with that injury, came back. He was awesome when he, he was against Detroit, right? So he had his moments. But the problem is when you're banking on a guy in your rotation and he only gives you 20 starts and 102 and two-thirds innings, it's just not good enough. And the Red Sox kept falling into this. And I think partially it could have been because of the contract. We're like, we're not going to pay all these other guys. We're paying this guy. We got to get something out of it. But the problem was they became too Chris Sale dependent. And when Chris Sale wasn't in there, the rotation would fall apart, right? And if Chris Sale struggled, that became a story in and of itself. So they needed to get out of the Chris Sale business. So Breslow could not get caught up in the same problem. And look, Bloom didn't sign the extension. It was Dabrowski. But he couldn't fall into the same trap that Bloom did, where he was just hoping that eventually Chris Sale would turn it around. Like, he just couldn't live in that neighborhood anymore. So unfortunately, this is how it ends with Chris Sale. But in terms of who they got back, Vaughn Grissom, he would have got a bigger opportunity basically anywhere other than Atlanta last year because how stacked that team is. Just 80 plate appearances at the big league level last year. Now in AAA, 460 plate appearances. Low strikeout numbers, big walk numbers, known as a high contact guy. He hit 330 with a 419 on base percentage. So we'll see. I mean, like, we'll see. He hasn't had an extended run at the major league level, but this is something they certainly needed was a second baseman. Now, nobody believes he can play short, but what you need is a second baseman. So we'll see if this sort of works out in terms of, hey, if you get your starting second baseman for Chris Sale, what Chris Sale is now, I think you'll take that from a Red Sox perspective, right? And I just feel like it was time to move on from Chris Sale. And unfortunately, this is all you get back because this is where he's at at this particular point in time. Like during his career, think about what you gave up, right? Moncada and Kopik, and not that those guys worked out at like an insane high level for Chicago, but the prospect hall to get Chris Sale. Now you're getting back one guy. But anyway... And then there's the Lucas Giolito part of this where they had been linked to him for a while and we thought this could happen and they end up signing him. So just a refresher on Giolito, walk rate last year was bad, 9.2%, which is 56th of 67 starters, minimum of 140 innings. The strikeout rate, pretty good, 25.7%, 20th. He does have good stuff, more on that in a second. 131 whip, 48th. Here's the big one, 2.00 home runs per nine innings. 65th out of 67 starters. He has real issues with the long ball. The barrel percentage, so the amount of batted balls that are barreled up, 11%, which is 65th. No ground balls, as evident by the home runs. 36.2%, 57th rather of 67. The ERA is 488, 58th of 67. And the FIP 527 is 62nd of 67. So you look at this and you say, well, the numbers aren't great. The one good number that you could certainly point to is the last three years, 524 and two-thirds innings, 15th in Major League Baseball during that stretch. And this is obviously something that the Red Sox need is just a reliable guy in the rotation. So I was talking to my buddy Ann Kundal from Sox Prospects, who we've had on the pod a bunch, of course. And he pointed out he just, the guy completely lost his fastball at the end of the season. So if you look at August, opponents slug 788 against his fastball, with a 55.6% hard hit rate. That's balls off the bat 95 plus. So think about that. 55% of the fastballs that were actually hit were coming off the bat north of 95. So he wasn't fooling ever anybody. Then you look at September and October, it got worse. They slugged 949 with a 73.1% hard hit rate against the heater. Like that's, those are Looney Tunes numbers. And they're so ridiculous that there clearly had to have been something wrong. Like he was doing something wrong. Maybe he got fatigued, whatever it was. There was clearly something so wrong to see the numbers balloon to that level. So clearly Breslow and that front office look at that and they thought, okay, whatever it was with the fastball, we'll be able to fix that, right? Because those numbers, like, I'm not telling you that his fastball is great, but those numbers are just complete outliers. Not to say the numbers with the fastball are great. They're going to have work to do there. But clearly, they think there's something they can fix. And let's also remember this. Getting back to the point where he spent 15th innings, innings over the past three years, the Red Sox were 27th in innings pitched out of the rotation last year. 
So at least this is a guy that can give you 150 innings next year and you feel comfortable that he should do that because he's been doing it recently, okay? And you're hoping that what you brought Breslow in here for is to fix the pitching department here with the Red Sox that he can, A, fix the fastball and the people around him, of course, can fix the fastball and B, maybe mess with the pitch mix a little bit, right? Because I mean, his changeup was good. Like the changeup last season, he threw 28% of the time and opponents just hit 209. So there are some tools there. It's just about sort of fixing the pitch mix and hopefully fixing that fastball because that's going to be the big thing. So like in a vacuum, I don't mind this move at all. He's a mid-rotation type of guy that's durable. That's useful in Major League Baseball. Like not every staff is made of five aces. Like you need somebody to get you like Rick Porcello, and I know that maybe that's a bad example because he won a side one year, but Rick Porcello, Porcello, rather, you could depend on every fifth day he's going to go out there and make his star, right? Like that's that's valuable for a guy that just goes out there because outside of that Cy Young year, he's like a good pitcher. He wasn't a great pitcher. It's like, hey, this guy's going to go out there every fifth day for me. Like that is a valuable thing. So I do think in a vacuum, this is a nice move. And my concern though is this. What I would like this to be is a secondary move in the rotation. Like, okay, you didn't make the move, you made a move. Because if you look at the rotation right now, you're looking at Bayo and Giolito for sure, right? Like, those are your top two guys right now. And then I'd say Pavetta and Crawford would be in there. And I guess Hulk right now, as things currently stand. Like, I'm guessing that would be your rotation. I know they want to mess around with Winkowski in the rotation too. But, like, that's where it kind of stands right now. So you're still without an ace. Now, Bayo, we'll see. I mean... There was some concerning stuff down the stretch of the season. We talked about it on the pod with Bayo and his fastballs, especially pitching to lefties. He's going to be more consistent there. But it still feels like you're missing that legit front end of the rotation guy, right? And it feels like they're not even in the Jordan Montgomery sweepstakes and they're not in on Blake Snell. That's what it feels like. Which, look, maybe you say, hey, Montgomery's going to get this big long-term contract. I don't want to give it to him. And maybe you're concerned about Blake Snell's walk numbers. All I'm saying is this, is these are the type of the guys that the Red Sox used to be connected to, right? And they're just, it doesn't feel like they're in that zip code. They don't live in that neighborhood anymore, so to speak, right? And I did find it interesting too, that the boss Bill Simmons tweeted this out. This is from Jeff Passan's article. He took a piece of the article, billed it and tweeted this. Well, Boston pursued two-way star Shohei Otani and right-hander Yamamoto, both signed with the Dodgers. And I agree with Bill, like, this is just laughable. The idea that the Red Sox actually pursued Otani and Yamamoto, no, they didn't. They didn't pursue those guys. What it happened is, and I know Passon put it out there, that, hey, he, I'm guessing he talked to people at the Red Sox and they wanted that in the article where it's like, hey, we, we pursued those guys. No, you didn't. You're, you really didn't pursue those guys, right? Like, what they wanted, what the Red Sox wanted is the perception that they're still the Red Sox and, like, all these other teams that were rumored with Yamamoto and... Otani, obviously, they go to the Dodgers. But think about the other names, the Yankees, right? We thought, hey, is Yamamoto going to go to the Yankees? The Giants were heavily involved, right? Toronto was heavily involved in Otani. Obviously, he doesn't end up going there. But that was a team that, that was like, oh, maybe they could really get Otani. The Red Sox weren't real in the, all that, right? They just wanted their name in there. They weren't going to pay those guys. They just wanted their name in there. Th- that's what they wanted. They wanted. They didn't want to actually sign those guys. They wanted the perception out there that they did want to sign those guys, even though we can see through it. So when you see this from Passant, where he's like, they pursued Otani and Yamamoto. Not really. The Yankees pursued Yamamoto. Yeah, they did. You know what? The Blue Jays, they pursued Otani. The Red Sox didn't pursue those guys. They did not pursue those guys, right? But anyway, getting back to the point of the idea that I don't see them signing a big name guy. How about this from Chris Cotillo? He wrote this today in his Sunday column. According to a baseball source, the Red Sox have told at least one free agent target that they need to shed more payroll before pursuing as aggressively as they want to. Okay, so Cotillo points out, by the way, this isn't like they're near the CBT right now. The CBT is $237 million. Right now, the Red Sox are at $200 million. So they're not close to the CBT because there was some other stuff that Cotillo had in there about the... Uh, CBT as well. But the point about this one is you have a baseball source saying the Red Sox have told a free agent that they need to shed more payroll before they could possibly sign the guy. Think about what a disadvantage you're working with right now if that's the case, where you're like, hey, we really actually like this guy. And we don't know who the player is, but and we, maybe it's Teoscar Hernandez, whoever it is. We don't know who it is, but it's like, hey, um, listen, we love you. We want you here. 
Can you give me like 48, 72? Actually, could you give me a week? No, I think I can get rid of another contract here. I just got rid of 17 mil with sale. Can you hold on? I'll get rid of some more money. We'll bring in. It's like, well, dude, I have like offers from like three other teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hold on. It's like, dude, what, what is this? Like the fact that they actually, like the fact that that's a problem, cut the payroll after. Cut the payroll after you bring in the guy that you want, right? Like who cares? Just if you want a player, sign the player. And that's like, if that's the mandate, that Breslow's getting is, hey, you have to cut to this level of payroll before you can sign another guy. That to me is just ridiculous. And the whole thing to me is the more and more you sort of hear about these things, the more and more concerned you get. Like right now, I have just lost all faith in this ownership group, right? Now, if Breslow pulls off some sort of trade for a starter and they sign Teoscar Hernandez to go with Giolito, I'll give Breslow all the credit in the world because it does feel like now what you're going to have to do is be creative with some of the guys in your farm system. And Breslow talked about this too the other day about being willing to trade some of those higher level prospects for starting pitching. Okay, great. Then you'll feel happy about it, right? If they make a trade for a good starting pitcher, they bring in Tay Oscar and they already signed Giolito, who's an inning eater type guy. But you're not going to give the ownership any credit. You're going to say, whoa, that was a really nice deal by Craig Breslow. That wasn't, hey, ownership did anything, right? Ownership didn't like light a green light or something for you. They just said, Hey, if you can be creative with this, it's just, I think about it from this perspective. I'm going to do a cross, uh, cross sport comparison here is it seems like the opposite of Wick and what he did for Brad last off season, right? Is, Hey, is this guy going to help us win a championship? We'll go get him. Um, Porzingis. So he's going to help us win. Okay. Yeah, we'll get him. Um, Drew Holiday. He's available now. Well, Brad, if we sign him, we're going into the second apron. Does he make us closer to a championship team? Yeah, Wick, he does. Okay, go, go trade for him. Let, let's go win a championship. The Red Sox, it seems like the opposite of that. Well, hold on. How good is this guy? Well, he's really good. Okay, but just don't go to the CBT. Oh, okay, okay, wait, hold on. We, we want to get this guy now. He can give us 30 home runs. Hold on. Can you shed 15 mil before you bring that guy in? And then we may be willing to do it. It's just like, it just seems so tedious to me. And look, it, it really feels like the ownership group was bothered after Mookie took over Fenway Park and that became a whole storyline and all that like that and maybe the Bear Claw game too where they were just it was just embarrassing but they came out in the offseason Tom Warner came came out and said they're full throttle right <laughs> saying that the resources essentially what Sam Kennedy has said is the rings the resources were spent in the wrong place and it's sort of like they're getting exposed by the quotes they put out there right so because now it just feels like everything we hear is they are pinching pennies. And if you're doing that, like, I know they got this big real estate thing going on in Fenway Park. Like, what's the point? Like, if you don't want to compete and try to win, like you're the Boston Red Sox. If you want to do, if you don't want to do everything possible, put all your resources in trying to win, what's the point of owning the Boston Red Sox, right? It's just, now it's just another business venture for you. And these guys came in and they were great owners. And now we're looking at, it's like, Really? We're telling guys they got to wait for us to cut payroll before we can sign them. Who would want to play here, right? So it just, it just feels like a disaster. And reading that from Cotillo, it just, it sort of puts an exclamation mark on everything we've heard this offseason, which is just unfortunate because I wanted to see a good, competent baseball team next year. And look, maybe Breslow, as I said, pulls off a Houdini act here and has some crazy trade that he pulls off. But right now, no faith in the organization whatsoever. No faith in the ownership group. And I wonder... How much of a fair shot Breslow's really going to get to try to build this thing? All right, coming up next, we'll bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. We do have time for an email. That email address, pike at gmail.com. And that's where we bring in producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. Last day of 2023, Brian. How are you doing? I know, man. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Getting ready for the ball to drop. I know. We'll see if I make it. I'm a little sick, but uh, I think I'll battle through. Are you sick? A little sick. Well, I, I take blame for it because I've been sick for like 
I've been sick, but I'm I'm not going to take blame for that because we're we're over Zoom, right? So I didn't That's see right, you. So I, I didn't get you sick. Yeah, yeah, game time decision for the party tonight. Though I'm not sure I can make it. I got you. Well, you're on the west. You're back in the West Coast, right? We're recording at what five twenty East Coast time, so it's only two twenty. You can get a nap in or something. Yeah, I think I must. All right, what do we get for email? Um, we got this from Eddie in Peabody, close to, close to you, Brian. Right, very close to you. Maybe do you know this Eddie? Yeah, I don't. I'm, I I mean, I could know this Eddie. I don't know if it's an Eddie I know. I do know an Eddie in Peabody, but I don't know if it's this Eddie. I will right, we'll track him down. I grew up with an Eddie in Peabody. Doubt it's him though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> All right, Eddie writes. Uh, I've been a Patriots fan going back to the Sullivan days of the 1970s. So probably different Eddie. Uh, we've this all is been not very the Eddie fortunate. I grew up with. <laughs> we've all been very fortunate and spoiled to have lived through. Uh, there are 20 years of glory that will probably never be matched. The Patriot way or the system worked. They could pay less for talent, take a chance on malcontents. It could be coached up by Belichick on the defense and Brady and the offensive coordinator on the offense. For the past four years, the system has failed miserably. Uh, for the past several years, Bill has failed as general manager, and as a result, record-wise, we now have one of the worst teams in the NFL. Uh, without question, his game management skills are not what they once were. So deservedly so, he will go down as the greatest coach ever, but it's time to move on. Uh, I wish him the best. I'll be extremely disappointed if he is back next year, and I will be just as disappointed if a system person like Gerard Mayo is named head coach. Patriots fans deserve a clean sweep. Uh, so let's not worry about what draft pick the Patriots will get. We know there's no guarantees with them. Instead, let's be hopeful that next season, there will be new innovative people in place to get this team back to a semblance of what it once was. Brian. Your thoughts. All right. So a couple of things here. If and I had this off the top here after we reacted to the game is if we had this conversation six, seven weeks ago, I would have agreed with Ed in, in the great city of Peabody. I would have totally agreed with him. But now that you look at it and you start to think about it ever since they moved Mac to the bench and started Zappy, I feel like the team has played better. And I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't see a team that is like not playing for its coach right now. Yeah. Like I see teams across the NFL that aren't playing for the coach. I saw a Carolina team that wasn't playing for Frank Reich anymore and they got rid of Frank Reich. I saw a Las Vegas Raiders team that wasn't playing for Josh McDaniels anymore and they got rid of Josh McDaniels. I don't see that right now with this Patriots team. So, and if the whole idea, going back to what we talked about earlier, is that Gerard Mayo is eventually going to take over. And I know Ed said that he doesn't want Gerard Mayo to be the guy. And I... I I'm not against that. I just, I'd like a search. I don't, I don't want it just to be like, hey, Gerard Mayo's mm-hmm. the guy, right? But anyway, getting back to my point is like, if the Patriots plan, not my, what I would like to see or what Ed would like to see or what you would like to see, Jamie, if their plan is, hey, the next guy is Gerard Mayo, I would bring back Bill next year. I, I don't think that you need, I don't think it's mm-hmm. so desperate to move on from Bill. Look, there has to be like a contingency to this, right? Not a contingency, but there has to be some sort of rules to this where it's like, okay, but Bill, you're going to have to give up less of the front office. And if he's willing to do that and he's going to come back for that, then yes, I would like you need to bring somebody else in from a different organization to help out with the front office stuff. And if Bill's willing to do that, why would I be in a rush to have Gerard Mayo be the coach? Like, I don't think that's necessary. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And, and clearly when they're on the football field, he, he's still got it. And, you know, Josh Allen was like 15 for 30. Like He can still do his thing on defense and on offense. But I think the thing I've just been thinking about is, it seems like everyone's in agreement that he needs help uh, in the front office, but it's like, it's still going to, I feel like it's going to be, it's very hard for me to imagine, even if they bring someone in, it's still going to be like his philosophy, you know, for like team building and stuff like that. If he's in the picture, like how is he going to be the head coach and not have his fingerprints all over like the roster building, even if there is another guy in the, in the GM role, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm sure we're at the point now where it's like, Hey Bill, if you don't do this, yeah. You're not coaching the team, right? Like if Bill's like, if, if, if in this situation we're saying how like I think Bill should be the coach next year, if they go to Bill and they say, hey, Bill, we're bringing in a GM, like we're bringing in Adam Peters from San Francisco, he's going to run yeah. the team, who actually does have experience with the Patriots from 03 to 2008. And Bill says, no, I don't want to do that. Like I want full control of the thing. Then you say, okay, then it is time to move on from Gerard Mayo. If Bill's not willing to do that, then it's time to move on. And if you had asked me that question two, three years ago, I would have told you you're freaking crazy. Like there's yeah. no way Bill's going to give right. that up. But now, I mean, he's in his 70s. You can tell that the offense needs help in terms of the personnel and it's hurting his team. If he wants to keep his job, I don't I honestly don't think he wants to start over somewhere else. I don't I don't I don't think he has the motivation to do that at this point in his career. Like and I think it could get ugly for him. Like 
I think now, like, if he comes back next season, he has a chance to sort of, I don't want to say make this team really good, but make this team competent again. Yeah. Where, like, this is a bad year. Like, Bill doesn't want to stop coaching after this. And I think he wants an opportunity. And look, this is just conjecture, I'm guessing. I think Bill wants to fix this mess. And I think he knows he can fix this mess coaching it because they've played well. Like, down, like I know they had turnovers today, but they played, like, the defense, yeah. you mentioned it. Josh Allen was terrible. Like, really think about it. In recent, like, Dak lit him up, right, when the Patriots are turning the ball over left and right. Who's really the other quarterbacks that have lit him up this year? It's like, Tua and Jalen didn't really light him up, right? Like, has there really been a... Games where they've been lit up. Well, the Saints won big, right? Yeah, the Saints won big, but it wasn't like Derek Carr was awesome. No. Right? A like lot of turnovers. You start to think about it. It's not like Herbert had zero and what, six points? Right. And I get it, that was a weird situation in terms of the weather, but it's not like they've been lit up by opposing quarterback. They beat Josh Allen once. They won that game 29-25, and they made him look terrible. Today is yeah. his worst game of the season by passer rating. Like he was horrible. So I still think he can coach. So I mean I, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy for because I've seen what they look like. It's crazy what, I mean, Zappy's not even that good, but he, he looks so much better than Mac. <laughs> yeah. And it just, it just feels like the, there's so, like the vibes are way better. It felt like the vibes are off throughout the season. And I was like, these guys are playing for shit and they're going out there and they're playing hard. I think the one thing that you could say though, about what you just uh, said is why wasn't Zappy playing quarterback earlier? I mean, that's Bill's decision, right? It's like, they'd have a lot more wins. I, I maybe not a lot more wins. They would have more wins if Zappy was playing earlier. And that's, that was a mistake, I think. I mean, what is he, 4-2 and two, two going to this game, Zappy, as a starter? And I don't know. I mean, like, even after he threw that third pick, not for a second did I want Mac Jones back in the game. And I feel like we were talking for weeks and weeks and weeks about it's time to move on from Mac. And he was a little late on the trigger for that. I agree with what you're saying, Jamie, because we talked about this with Doug. And Doug had an interesting point on this because I think what happened is, like, Mac, it was three consecutive games that he got pulled, right? Crazy. There was a stretch there at some point yeah. where he got pulled out yeah. of three consecutive, right? And when Zappy came in, he was horrible. So what Doug was saying is like Zappy didn't get comfortable in the Bill O'Brien offense until he was actually the starter. And like he could have some say right. in like what went into the game plan. Because he's in team meetings, but Doug's point is like, they're not saying, hey, Bailey, what do you like on this play, right? It's like, hey, Mac, what do you like on this down and this? It's not because Zappy wasn't planning on, like, they're not planning on playing Zappy, right? You're not planning for your backup quarterback to play. So it took him a while to get comfortable. And I do think that if, like, say that, say if Zappy had a better spring and or a better, uh, better training camp, better yeah. preseason, right. better games when he actually came in for Mac, then they would have made the switch quicker. But I'm with you. Like, what would have happened if they just made the switch, say, like, after the Cowboys game, right? Like this team would, yeah. like they be able, they they may have seven wins if they just played Zappy. Yeah, I think so. And, and I not mean, that that's a huge achievement, but they would have been a lot better. No, I think we'd probably like be in the hunt for the seventh seed at this point. But um, I, I'm not sure that's for the better, for the best long term for the organization. Maybe it was good we had Mac Jones, so we have a chance at getting Drake May or something. That's true. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to beat the Jets next week, and they're going to pick like I don't know fourth or fifth. I. Like I that. I got to do more research, but I'm going, uh, I'm going 30 to zip, Patriots over Jets. I don't know. Did you see that? You saw that uh, that Browns-Jets game on Thursday night? They looked absolutely terrible, the Jets. They they were horrible, man. And I don't know what's going on with Flacco. This is crazy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how crazy. he's this good now. He's oh, literally yeah. like better now than when he won a Super Bowl. He does look rejuvenated. Well, good for him. By the way, this Commanders-Pats thing, if they both lose, is going to be crazy because they keep going back and forth. Like it's like lose, uh, I, I, it's it's so difficult to keep track of it. It's like a, a thousands place I saw like the it's like four decimal places separating them out. Yeah, and the other thing is like I I don't look. I know that there's obviously been a lot of smart people that went into like coming up with these formulas, but why doesn't head to head matter? I don't I don't understand that. If you have a head to head and Washington beat the Patriots, why wouldn't the Patriots be ahead? Why isn't that a fact? <laughs> I mean, there, I there's what... probably a simple explanation for it, but it's like. It's just weird. Strength of schedule. It's just bizarre. Also, Brian, is this a thing that uh, other fans do every year? Like, is it just because we've been good for 20 years that we never think about this? Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm spending so much time on this every week. Is this what other fan bases do? Well, it was a huge story last year because the final game of the season, remember the Texans won? Right. Oh, yeah, of course. One, they two. won the game. They were going to get the number one pick, but they won. Now, it ended up working out for them because right. they ended up getting C.J. Stroud anyway. They... And they traded up two, so they had two and three. They got Will Anderson, so it ended up working out for them. But 
everybody's like, how could you do this? And then, hey, Carolina's like, hey, we got you guys. We're going to fuck up the pick, so you're all good. Don't worry about it. Uh, last thing on the draft, though, just watching the Cardinals beat the Eagles say, you think they, I feel like they're going to, they might stick with Murray next year. Yeah, that's a possibility. Well, yeah, if they, if they get the four, yeah. Right. But I mean, they may screw themselves out of, uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. Like now this is another wrinkle for the Patriots. What if they stay at three? Right. I mean, I, uh, but I don't know. I, I still think they're winning next week, but like you get my point is like Arizona felt like it makes a ton of sense for them to just draft Marvin Harrison Jr. And pair him up right. with Kyler Murray. But that sounds good. Who knows, man? Next week is going to be next week is going to be wild. I know, Brian. I don't want to give you a heart attack, but uh, if, if we win next week, we could potentially be tied with the Giants and Titans for record. So potentially could be looking at like a seven pick. Yeah, the Titans stink. I wonder if Rabel wants to stay there. Like, I wonder if Rabel wants a new new team. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. Happy New Year. You too, brother. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Sruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.